So on our way here, we were talking about the debates in college, Mm -hmm. and your point was why were... Why are grown men harassing, like, 18-year-old college freshmen? I think think the the premise is good to go in there and debate. Yeah. And if you go in there with the understanding that you want to share your experience Mm -hmm. and share your knowledge to, for everyone to come into a newer or broader understanding, I think that's great. But when you come in there, like, to literally, as you say, own them and, like, preside over them. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's kind of... it. If your intention is actually to go in there and have a debate, that's great. I mean, that's what university is for. But if you're 35 and you're showing up to debate unprepared college freshmen and you bring a binder of sources and information... I don't think your intentions are necessarily to have a debate. Your intentions are to win an argument. And then you're going to post that argument online to show how stupid the kids are. And it's like, well, you could do the same thing from the left. It just hasn't really been done. I mean, college freshmen probably aren't going to be the most educated on some of these things. I mean, their education has literally just began. And your whole career is being a political pundit. So it's not really a fair Mm -hmm. I think it's to show them that... You don't know as much as you think you do. Yeah, I get that. I think that applies to probably most of the population. It applies to me too. It applies probably to everyone to some degree or another. But There's value in different sides coming together and debating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if all you, if the objective is to win and not to gain more wisdom, mm-hmm. then we're erred in our thinking. I agree. I mean, yeah, both sides usually, in at least normal circumstances, have something to add to to the discussion because you need both a conservative and a more progressive political attitude. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about any specific policies, just those attitudes, because sometimes the right answer is we need reform. Sometimes the right answer is we need to burn everything down. I don't think we're at that point quite yet, but obviously, historically, sometimes that has been the right answer. And sometimes the right answer is, well, things are kind of okay the way they are. And I think that's why you have different groups of the population that have these different political attitudes. But depending on the circumstances you find yourself in, I think which side is correct is very much dependent on the context of what's actually happening. Right now, I don't think the conservative political attitude has a great case in a lot of ways. And I don't think a lot of people that even identify as conservative necessarily have a conservative political attitude. Because they see it as society has progressed to such a point that we've actually regressed and we need to go back to some previous time. And that's a reactionary political attitude. And I see that as actively trying to step backwards instead of forwards. Um, So, yeah, but that aside, there's definitely a value in having two sides to the discussion. Um, We just need to be a bit more sensible in how we go about it. And hopefully we can have some return to normalcy in our politics. So. There's actually a discussion to be had, and we can meet each other on some sort of even ground where we can agree on the basic facts, because we just can't can't do that right now. I was scrolling through YouTube the other day, and a video popped mm-hmm. up, and I won't tell you who... who, who I'm going to guess after you tell me what it is. Who published the video, but it was along the lines of it showed a black person with a headline. I didn't think that I would be red-peeled, but I was. Uh And I would have watched that because I try to watch everything. It doesn't matter on their views. But I had already quit watching this particular 
publisher of information because they drew a conclusion of a book, a history book, not on the facts, but on the character of the author who wrote it. Mm -hmm. And their whole premise for it was that this is this book is dangerous for Americans because mm -hmm. it will not put America in the greatest light. Yeah. And my thinking to that is give us the facts. We are smart enough to discern for ourselves. Yeah. We we just want truth. Mm -hmm. And there is this ideology, I think, that to love America, you cannot see the history of America. Yeah. You only have to view it as under the lens that we have been perfect. And mm -hmm. we we have not been perfect. And I think you 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 learn from your mistakes yeah. and go forward. And I think that has been the beauty of America is that we have learned, we have grown, we have pro progressed. When one side has coined the term of patriot. Yeah. Which implies that if you were not aligned with them, you are not a patriot. Yeah. I do not find that the case at all. Mm -hmm. I find that generally everyone loves this country and we want it to become the best that yeah. it can. When I meet people out and about in public at a grocery store, I find a lot of kindness. I find a lot of friendliness. I do not sit there and think to the person in front of me or in back of me, I bet I'm paying off their student loans. <laughs> I wonder I wonder what tax bracket they fall yeah. in. Hmm. I wonder who they voted for. Mm -hmm. I feel like our interpersonal relations are a lot better than our political relations because a lot of our political relations were either we're usually demonizing some other that oh, I think a lot of times we don't even really understand that we are interacting with those people on a day-to-day -day basis. But we tend to think of them as somewhere else, something else, doing God knows what to hurt our lives. But usually it's just, you know, someone down the street. If you're a Republican, someone down the street's probably voting Democrat. They're not trying to come to your house and, you know, take your kids or do anything crazy like that. But going back to what you were saying about this ideology about trying to protect us from dangerous information, I really couldn't agree more with that sentiment. Um, and also the sentiment that, you know, in order to be a patriot, you have to um, you have to have this unconditional love for your country, and you can never criticize it. I think that's nonsense. I think love and truth go hand in hand, and I think in order to truly be a patriot, you need to be honest about your country's history, be honest about its shortcomings, because only then can you improve it. Because if you love something, if you love your country, you don't just want to take it as it is. You want to constantly see it be made better. Just like the same if you love your kid, you don't want them to stay in the same place for their entire life. You want to see them continually grow and develop and become a better person. And I, I view a country the same way. So I think different people have different perspectives on that, and that's fine. But it's really unfair to say that someone's not a patriot because they think that you know what the United States did to Native Americans was terrible. Or someone's not a patriot if they look at our current government and they say it's failing working class people. That's nonsense. It, it's the same way that a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, you know, if you're opposed to war, then you're against the troops. And it's like, how does that even make sense? 
if I'm opposed to war, I'm for the troops because I don't want them to go over there and get killed for no reason, just to enrich military defense contractors. So it's this kind of rhetorical trick that I think is really dishonest, and I'm glad more people are starting to wake up to it for sure. When media and politics is more interested in pitting one side against the other instead of telling all the Americans as a whole Mm -hmm. the truth, we're in danger. But because of ratings and everything else, conflict is more profitable than peace. Yeah, it's outrage porn. You know, the more angry you can get someone, the more likely they are to engage with whatever you're talking about. I mean, it's the best and the worst thing about having private media is profit motive, right? So they're not necessarily going to feel pressured to go – you know, lockstep with the government, like, you know, public media might in some countries. That's why, even though we have some media here that might be mildly state-funded, it's not like the complete state control of media that they have in, say, Russia or China. But private media definitely has its downsides, and one of them is what you just identified, especially in the age of the internet. It might have been a bit different before then, but with the internet, everyone has access to so much information, you're constantly fighting for everyone's attention. And for a lot of companies, the best way they found to do that is to sensationalize and make people angry. And that's that's a problem. And I don't know if there's a great solution to that because, yeah, it's it's great to sit around and say, well, I wish media would focus more on telling the truth. But at the end of the day, they're there to make money. And if the truth doesn't get people interested, they run out of money. They go bankrupt. They lose to their competition. You know, that's why you see companies like Fox absolutely dominating the airwaves. It's not because they're spending their time focused on the important issues. They're spending their time getting, you know, older Americans just absolutely feverishly angry about absolutely everything. So they're always tuning in saying, what are the Democrats doing today? What is the woke people doing today? And that's not a healthy way for a democracy to function. Uh, but it is, it's what we got right now. And we need to find some way, some path to navigate through it. Independent media might be a bit better about that, but there's always going to be some element of that because like I said, you have to fight for people's attention. That's going to cause some degree of sensationalism usually. So it's tricky. Now, if we spoke about a demographic and I don't, I want to be fair. If we mention Fox, we need to mention others. But of course, they. Well, I, I, they, I, the only reason I mentioned Fox is just because they are the most successful yes. cable news network. Yes. That's the only reason I brought them up. And what is there a demographic that is more susceptible to believing what they hear or aligning themselves with what they want to hear? How does, say, a boomer versus Gen Z assimilate information? Yeah. Well, I think. Generations in many important ways are the same because at the end of the day, we're all human beings. So we're all going to have some similar biases. Um, I do think there is a generational gap, though, mainly due to the fact that older people that grew up in the pre-internet era, I think, are fundamentally worse at evaluating information they see online than younger generations because these younger generations have grown up on the internet. They've seen how things can get twisted and manipulated because – you know, they they had to avoid downloading viruses when they were a kid. They saw crazy stuff on, you know, TikTok or on Instagram or on YouTube that they found out later to be untrue. I think they're just fundamentally better at using the internet 
and finding reliable sources of information than some older generations. Because older generations did grow up in an era when media at least seemed to be more trustworthy. So I think they're more susceptible to falling for information that they see online without necessarily doing the background contextual research to figure out whether or not that information is actually true. So I do think there's definitely a generational divide there. And I think that's why you see a lot of these online conspiracy theories. A lot of people falling into that are older people. Right now, I hear the same phrase from the left or from the right, each threatening that the other side is going to take their freedoms away. I don't even exactly know what they mean by that, mm-hmm. unless it is, if you threaten anyone that their freedom's going to be taken away, I want an explanation of what that is. I want, right. I want an explanation Well, it's the ultimate fear-mongering for American politics, because... I mean, our fundamental American values, and this is, before we get into that, I think I just need to say, people on the right and the left in America generally share similar values. And they've done studies and polls on this. The difference is people on the right and the left, they might put a different priority or they might have a different interpretation of how to apply those values. But fundamentally, our values have been relatively the same. They're the classic Enlightenment values, liberty, justice, equality. Now, equality can mean different things to different people. You know, if you're talking to a conservative in the Midwest, they're going to talk about equality of opportunity. If you're talking to, you know, a democratic socialist in L.A., they're going to tell you they might mean more equality of outcome. It just depends. So that's the first thing you need to understand. So, yeah, so liberty is one of our most important political values on both sides, and they interpret that differently. Um, so I'll just kind of outline what I think the perception is of the freedoms that are being taken from both the right and the left, and then I'll kind of give my spiel on who I think actually has the better case in terms of actual legislation that's recently come out. So I guess I'll start with the right. I think there's a perception on the right that their economic freedom is being threatened, their religious freedom is being threatened, um, and specifically their freedoms in regards to how they raise their children is being threatened. So on the economic freedom, I think there's a growing sense for a lot of people that, um, and it depends on who you talk to, but a lot of them, you hear a lot of fear-mongering about socialism and communism, right? People are worried that they're about to be taxed out of existence or every element of their economic lives is going to be so regulated that we're basically going to stop being a capitalist country. Um, In addition to that, they also are worried about religious freedom. To a lot of them, that means, you know, the freedom to teach their kids how they want, the freedom to make their own decisions in regards to how they interact with people based on their religious morality. Um, Also things like abortion can kind of be lumped into that category. Um, And that ranges in extremes. You know, you have some people that just, you know, they want to be able to worship as they please and that's absolutely fine. Then you have some people on the other end of the spectrum who think it's their religious freedom to teach about God in school, which is a different thing entirely. And then I guess the final thing going into the freedom of how to educate your children, there are a lot of people worried that the schools are pushing a woke ideology onto their children. And they're worried that basically children are more and more being being viewed as property of the state as opposed to, you know, a member of the family. And you can see a lot of this if you look online. People are talking a lot about states that are um, considering legislation to 
allow kids to transition, maybe without consent of their parents, or uh, have conversations with teachers without consent of their parents in regards to some of these issues. And that's something conservatives are really worried about, because I think their mind, at least how they're thinking about it, they might view it as this kind of slippery slope, where you start with, you know, uh, teachers being able to tell kids about certain things without knowledge of their parents and have these discussions. And at the end of the day, you might end up in a situation where if your kid comes out as trans and you say, well, no, you can't transition, then the state comes in, takes them from you and allows them to do that and considers it child abuse. So I think that's kind of the perception on the right of some of the freedoms that are being taken. And then on the left, I mean, the perception, and it's not really just a perception because it, it actually happened. Um, they're worried about reproductive freedom. They're worried about certain uh, economic freedoms like, you know, a union's – a worker's right to unionize, uh, the right to collectively bargain. Um, they're also increasingly concerned about religious freedom in a broad sense because it does seem there is this increasing push to um, desecularize the government in certain states and introducing more religious-based law, religious-based legislation. There are some people that have outright called for the – demolition of the separation between church and state. Um, I mean, we have people in Congress right now that self-identify as Christian nationalists, and they say that the founders uh, wanted this to be a Christian nation, and to that we should return. So that's some of the things that the left is concerned about. And, oh, I don't know how I forgot about this. Also, freedom in regards to marriage and who you're allowed to love, who you're allowed to form relationships with. They also view that as being under attack as well, in addition to trans rights and the ability to self-identify. So if we talked about freedom that impacted everyone. Yes, let's do it. The Right now, I think everyone wants the freedom to be able to pay their bills, yeah. to buy a house or rent, to live the American dream. Mm-hmm. And that possibility seems to slowly be dwindling down. Mm. This is, I think what you're talking about is a, a, a modern realization of economic freedom. Like I said, our country was founded on some of the fundamental enlightenment values, this being liberty, justice, and equality. All of those are values that may manifest themselves in different ways throughout history, because in truth, they're ideals. And we're always going to fall short of that ideal, and we're always going to be constantly pushing towards that ideal, and it's going to become, ideally, more and more realized with every passing generation. Now, that's not guaranteed. That has to be fought for. But it seems the broad scope of American history has been that. And I think what more and more people are beginning to realize, specifically younger generations, is that true liberty goes beyond mere civil rights and also expands into economic rights. So that's why I think there's been this renewed interest in something like an economic bill of rights because people realize that a baseline level of economic security actually increases economic freedom because it gives people more choices and more opportunities and that manifests as more liberty. When people aren't trapped in either poverty or in a terrible situation, they have the opportunity to get their feet under them, they have more choices. And they are released from those oppressive forces which kept them down. And liberty fundamentally is about the release of oneself from unnecessary oppressive forces wherever they're coming from, whether it be an individual or a government or even just a system. And it seems that in the modern age there is a growing focus on these new – this new conception of economic liberty that's really been a part of this country for a long time. I mean FDR proposed an economic bill of rights and if you look at that – that's a lot of the things that younger 
like Gen Z is really in favor of. So that's going to be things like a right to housing and shelter, right to a job, a right to a good education, a right to health care. These are all things that I think could help expand economic freedom. These are things that some other countries already do. And many of those countries, unsurprisingly, rank higher in economic freedom than the U.S. It's actually easier to do business there. I think in contrast to that, one may view it as a right and the other may view it as something you need to earn. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that. Not to get too like too much into theory right now. But I, I think what we need to kind of parse out is what a right actually is, right? And there are a lot of people that will say rights are God-given, and I don't necessarily agree with that. And the reason being is actually quite simple. Rights are a relatively new concept in human history. If you went back to ancient Greece, they did not have the same concept of rights as we do here. Rights as we know them today are largely a product of the Enlightenment period in Europe. And what rights really are, they're a social construct that have been institutionally enforced. And we as a society get to determine what rights are valid and what rights are not. Just as the founders determined that there are certain rights that they outlined in the Constitution, we today can decide to include more rights if we wish. Um, and I think the way that a lot of people in my generation view it, and increasingly people in older generations as well, is that if we as a nation have the ability to provide certain things to our population, because we have the wealth, we have the resources, we have the administrative capabilities. If we're able to do that, and it's going to provide better outcomes, both at a societal level and an individual level, then we have a moral obligation to do that. And the best way we know to guarantee that is to enshrine it as a right in our fundamental institutions, in our legislative system. I keep also hearing another slogan, the left, is follow the science. Mm -hmm. And then in contrast, I wonder if they are implying, okay, follow the science on the left. Are they implying that the right is following religion? I think sometimes. I think that's definitely the case. The left in general does tend to be more secular than the right. And yeah, there's definitely a, a big growing concern among the left that the right is increasingly pushing for more and more religious colored legislation poses a threat to some of our fundamental rights. And yeah, when they say follow the science, I think they're concerned that a lot of people on the right are instead following their faith or some sort of inherent bias that they have that's causing them not to necessarily see the truth of the situation because they're working backwards from their conclusions. And that's not to say that the left always follows the science. I mean, science is a process and it doesn't necessarily have a certain ideological bend, but there was a good quote I heard one time and you know, well, you can I take this as you will, but someone said, uh, I want to say it was a professor. I don't remember where I heard it. They said that uh, the reason that so much science tends to favor the left is because reality has a liberal bias. But once again, that's just kind of a snarky little quote, but I think it's funny. And okay, so it's it's a clever way to divide people further. If you equate science with fact and reality, and imply that the other side does not have that. Not only that, you are assuming that everyone that is for you falls into that category. I think that's a very... Falls into a I, category? Either religion or science. I think that's very dangerous. It might be someone And I don't know why dichotomy. you would want to make people choose 
why can't we all just have information and truth and a government that cares for all of us? I get what you're saying. I think the concern is that whenever you get a lot of hyper-religious people that start getting involved in making legislation, that legislation tends to take on the form of their religious beliefs. And it, it makes complete sense. I mean, if you're a religious person, a lot of your moral code is going to come from your religion, but and a, then that's going to flavor your politics. But a belief is a belief. So the attack that someone's beliefs mm-hmm. would be of less value because they are founded on a religious belief as opposed to someone whose belief was founded in their ideology. Mm-hmm. What is the difference? You both have beliefs. So calling out one is truth and one as not. Okay, so here's the issue with that. In regards to beliefs that are founded on science, those can be falsified or confirmed. The problem with religious beliefs is that fundamentally, by definition, they cannot be falsified or concerned. If you have two people with opposing religious beliefs, there's really no way for them to reconcile those beliefs without resulting in either violence or just walking away and not interacting. When you have two people with opposing scientific beliefs, you can reconcile that because there's a process for it. It's based in something we can observe and test, whereas religion, it's completely the opposite. And that's why I think having religion as the basis of a political ideology is inherently problematic because there is no mechanism by which that can be falsified. If it doesn't work, people are still going to double down over and over and over and over again because at the end of the day, they believe that to be inherently true. There's nothing you could tell them or show them otherwise. And it's the same thing we see in theocratic societies. They can literally be falling apart. They can be an absolute disaster of a country, a complete failed state. They will still be doubling down on the same religious policies that got them in that position because it's based on faith as opposed to evidence. And I think that's the concern that people have. And I don't think that necessarily all ideas are created equal. Now, that's not necessarily an attack on religious people. Like, you should obviously be able... Religious freedom is one of the most important things in this country. I think it's great, you know? And you should definitely be able to live your life as you see fit, but don't try and impose your religious beliefs on others using the levers of government. But the religious side would say, do not try to impose your beliefs on me. Well, that's why we have religious freedom. So uh, once again, it depends. Now, if your, if your religion calls for you to do something to someone else that violates their rights, you lose that argument. That is the basis of many of the Enlightenment values. You don't have the right to infringe on the rights of someone else unless you have a very, very, very good justification for doing so. There are extreme examples, but in most of the cases, like I, I guess we would need to get into examples of necessarily what you mean by that. Because we can have like a theoretical discussion, but I think it really – getting into examples might help because I'm not even entirely sure if I necessarily know what you mean. I might be interpreting it incorrectly, what you're trying to say. Another word we often hear is tolerance. Mm-hmm. Each, whether the left or whether the right, each side has claimed that the other side is hypocritical in what they tolerate. Both sides of the spectrum – could be very hypocritical. One, one of my big things right now is, let's say you are pro-life, but you do not want gun control to save lives. Mm-hmm. 
No, I mean, people in general are hypocritical, and I think they apply their values in selective ways a lot of times. Pro-life is one issue. One thing that's re- <laughs> has really been bothering me, obviously, I'm a left-leaning person, right? Um, so I tend to vote for Democrats or sometimes, you know, independent candidates that more align with my views. Um, but I am a registered Democrat because I, I think it's important to vote in the primary since that is the standard American left-wing party. A lot of people would argue they're not really that left-wing, but in terms of the American Overton window, they are the left side of that window. Um, so I'm, I'm a registered Democrat and I was really excited for an opportunity to maybe get to, you know, vote in the primaries this um, upcoming election cycle, because although I think Biden has done some good things, um, I think there are also some interesting contenders. And I wanted to hear, you know, kind of what they had to say, hear them out, hear their case. And I found out that the Democratic Party isn't planning on hosting an open debate. I also found out that they're reshuffling the states, presumably in an effort to give an advantage to Biden in the primaries. And that really bothered me. And the reason that bothered me so much is because the Democratic Party postures itself and presents itself as the party of democracy. I mean, it's in the name. In addition to that, that is constantly the rhetoric they are talking about. It's one thing they attack Republicans for. Well, they're attacking democracy. They're attacking voting rights. Look at January 6th. They don't like democracy. I think a lot of that's kind of true. But you can't call yourself the party of democracy. You cannot present yourself as the party of the people, by the people, and for the people if you're opposed to even having open democratic primary elections. Not only does it discredit that case that you've just made, but it hurts the party brand. And that has been driving me wild. I don't know why they're doing this to themselves. It really hurts themselves in the eyes of people like me because I want the opportunity to make my voice heard and I want to know that the other candidates that are running for the potential Democratic nomination, even if they don't have a chance in hell, they should have the opportunity to get up there and talk to Biden and make their voice heard and make their case for why they think they should be president. That is what democracy is all about. So if you're going to talk about it, be about it. And the Democratic Party right now isn't about it. They're just talking. And that's really, that's really been infuriating me lately. We are very bad at silencing our opponents. Yeah. And that whole scenario is disturbing to me as well. I have heard it suggested that they just go outside the White House and be bold. I think that'd be awesome. And have their own debates. uh, Get Joe Rogan to mediate. Get Marion Williamson, RFK up there, whoever else is running. Get him up there. Get a crowd of people. Get Joe Rogan, some other podcaster. I don't know if Joe Rogan would be willing to do it, but he might. I just think it'd be funny. I know he's not necessarily the most left-wing person on earth, but he is the most popular podcaster on the planet. Well, you know, my concern is that the will of the people is being restricted because whether the Democratic Party or the Republican Party will just tell us what our choice will be. Mm-hmm. Give, us, give us some options. Can I tell you why I think that is, fundamentally? Why there seems to be this increasing silencing of people with opposing viewpoints to you or people that fundamentally threaten you, I think really it boils down to just a lack of guts. It's a lack of courage. These people are so scared of what happens if they lose. Um, Republicans are terrified that the Democrats are going to turn this into a Stalinist, communist nation. Democrats are terrified that if Republicans get in office or if they spread their ideas, we're going to turn into... You know, an episode of The Handmaid's Tale, and 
you know, I'm not saying none of those fears are justified, but in order for us to continue functioning as a country, we have to have the courage to have these discussions. Because the fact of the matter is, people do believe these things, and pretending that they don't doesn't do anyone any service. And the idea that, you know, well, if we just, you know, keep them from the debate stage or we just keep them off the social media platforms, that's going to result in anything better. Well, a lot of times people that are already susceptible to those beliefs are going to see that and they're going to say, well, the system's out to get them. They must be saying something right because the system doesn't want to hear what they have to say. And a lot of times you actually end up giving more credit to their case. I mean, you see this a lot with conspiracy theorists that get silenced on social media. They say, well, I mean, look at someone like Andrew Tate. Well, the Matrix is out to get me. It's like that lended a lot of credit to his case. Now, obviously, there are people that aren't going to be susceptible to that. But you have to consider the other consequences whenever you're engaging in that sort of behavior. And we have to be able to have these discussions openly. We have to be able – I think you have a duty if you're going to push for a certain political viewpoint. You have to be able to defend it against criticism. Even if the criticism is ridiculous and absurd, people are ridiculous and absurd. And you have to be able to make your case in spite of that. I am tired as an American citizen being told what to think, who I should like, who I should dislike, mm -hmm. what I should fear – what I should love, what I should do, how I should feel, and the list goes on and on yeah. and on. I feel like that, that, that little sense of rebellion runs in the American blood. If our electoral process shows the true will of the people, and if a president is the representation of us, there needs to be debates so that we can see for our side for ourselves. Exactly. We need to see debates so that we can decide for ourselves, you know, pros and cons. And yeah. that's something we talked about on our... I mean, I just, I think it's cowardly and it's manipulative of the party to do that. I mean, not having debates is just insane. Like, I, I think it should be legally required. I don't even think it should be something that the party should be able to have a say in. Like, if you cross that 2% threshold, you're in the debate, you're going. If you don't show up, well, bad luck for you, man. Bad luck for you. So, Well, why would someone not show up? Now, I... I don't know. Maybe if they're an incumbent and they don't think there's enough advantage, but, I mean, that would... It would play weak, so I think most people would show up. But yeah, I just think that's crazy. Like, how are you not going to have a debate when you are supposed to be the party of democracy? That is so hypocritical, it's astounding. And in addition to just me having an issue with it on account of principles, it's a massive source of ammunition for the right because then they can point at you and say, look how hypocritical these people are. They want to talk about democracy. They want to lambast us for being opposed to democracy when they're not even hosting open debates. And especially considering that there's a sizable portion of people in this country that think the last election was rigged, saying the Democratic Party isn't even having debates doesn't exactly help against that case. Well, and if we do have debates, there needs to be a non-biased moderator yeah, good luck with that. asking the questions so that one cannot, through bias, shine more yeah. than the other. I am, I am tired of manipulation because Americans are smarter than our politicians give us credit for. I feel like they just try to coddle us, and they think that if they say things in the right ways that the American peoples will just eat it up. And, you know, I mean, honestly, some people do. But I think more and more people are starting to realize that a lot of, not everything, because I'm not like this fervent anti-establishment person. 
I mean, a lot of our institutions are valuable and they do important things, but a lot of things that you hear from the mainstream media, particularly the corporate media, it is so slanted in such kind of a nefarious way that people are rapidly running away from it. And we've talked about this before. I mean, that's good in some ways, but bad in others, because say what you will about the corporate media, they're going to have higher journalistic standards than, you know, probably random YouTubers. And that's not to say people can't parse out good information for their own, but a lot of people can't. Um, and they run from the establishment media right into the hands of alternate media that in many cases is more dishonest than the thing they were avoiding to begin with. And that's a huge problem. And I don't see necessarily a clear way out of that. I mean, the best way is to try and help as many individuals as possible figure out how to determine what is good information, what is a reliable source. They, they need a lot more contextual information about history and about the way our systems work so they're less vulnerable to some of these more conspiratorial approaches to things. Well, you're only, your decisions are only as good as the information you have yeah. to make those decisions. And the media is such where you will be given two different sets of, quote, information that lead you to make one decision or another. And so people feel very justified yeah. in their decisions because this is what they've heard and this is what they have based their decision, their opinion, their action upon. But when you have one half of the country receiving one set of information, and let's be honest, whether either side, it's it's leading you to a decision. Yeah. It's disappointing. Mm -hmm. I don't have a solution how to fix it because a lot a lot of times, hey, let's face it, we we want to hear what we want to hear. Yeah. I think it's 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 a human problem. And I think we can talk a lot about how, you know, politics gotten worse and worse and worse. But I think there are systemic factors that play into that. I mean, obviously the economic conditions are one, but the internet's a big, big, big one. Well, let's talk about freedom of information, freedom of well, speech. Uh, it's it's not even just that. It's just we have no idea how the internet's going to affect our politics going forward. It's so new. I mean, it's only really been mainstream for 15, 20 years. Social media is not even two decades old, really. Well, if it has the power to censor what information is out there. Well, it's not even – that's not even the biggest thing that I'm – I mean, obviously that's a big concern, the ability to censor information. But social I media – I always heard – I always heard you have the right to say something. It might make you a jerk for saying it, but you have the right to say it. And I think we have allowed ourselves to be so offended by an opposing view as opposed to just deflecting it and say, you know, hey, you believe what you want to believe. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder if people have kind of always been that soft, but it's come out more because of the Internet. I don't know. I really don't know because, I mean, there there have been studies that have linked like increased Internet activity to um, like psychopathic type behavior because there's the anonymous factor. You can say things to people on the Internet that you would never say to someone in real life. At least most people wouldn't. And a big thing with the Internet and kind of our politics going beyond like the censorship and the freedom of speech thing 
just the simple fact that there's so much information out there now. And political ideologies that used to be fringe, because there's no way to really spread them effectively, because if you told your friend about it, they might be like, that's weird. It might only appeal to a very small segment of the population. But now through the internet, you can reach that small segment of the population instantly. And those ideas can spread very rapidly, whereas before it might have taken a long time if they had ever taken off at all. So this ability, pretty much everyone has been handed a megaphone that they can speak to the entire country with, maybe even the, the entire world, if they have you know the ability to articulate themselves well and if they're a compelling speaker, a persuasive person. And we have no idea what impact that's going to have on our politics. So whose responsibility is it ultimately to have their button on what is allowed in free speech and what is not? Who has the authority to deem information more worthy, less trustworthy, a threat to national security, a threat to revolt? I mean, we've seen a lot of things happen within the last few years that really had people pitted against each other. COVID, we had some people think that their neighbor was absolutely had murder in their heart if they didn't wear a mask or if they did not want the vaccine. We've just the rage culture. And then in, in the news, we had someone shoot someone because they pulled into the wrong driveway. We had someone shoot someone because they rang the wrong doorbell. We had someone shoot someone because their family's basketball went into their yard. We had someone shoot someone because they accidentally tried to get into a car they thought was their own, but it wasn't. This is, this is not the America that any of us wants, but I think maybe we have to ask our questions to ourselves. What are we allowing to enrage us, and where can we, where can we heal the divide? Yeah. How does voting demographics influence partisan political issues? Okay. Well, you know, age, gender, and race all play a big impact. Age is pretty obvious because people at different ages are going to be concerned with different problems because they're facing different experiences. Older generations tend to be more wealthy. They've been around longer. They've had a chance to accumulate more wealth. They tend to own more property. So they're going to tend to lean more conservative in their sort of economic viewpoints. Um, Also, some of that's just a cultural thing, just the era they grew up in. Um, younger people increasingly more and more are becoming more left-leaning. So ranging from liberal to increasingly a sort of social democratic slash democratic socialist uh, viewpoint on economic issues. Um, Younger generations are also increasingly more and more educated, which results in them being more socially liberal as well because those things are um, empirically correlated. The more educated you are, you tend to become more liberal simply because like at a university um, you have more contact with people of different races different ethnicities different backgrounds and that contact leads to more liberalized social attitudes Um, in terms of gender i know on average men are more conservative than women generally speaking Um, and that probably has to do with psychology i know men on average are more disagreeable than women Again, we're talking about averages of population, and it seems that uh, disagreeableness and compassion, um, those are things that are related to conservative versus a more progressive political attitude. Um, And then in terms of race, obviously racial history in America has played a big role in um, 
shaping kind of what the partisan divide looks like today. So you're going to see a lot of people of color, vast majority of people of color are going to vote left-leaning for Democrats. And that's just simply because the conservative party in America historically, now it hasn't always been the Republican party. A long time ago, it was actually the Democratic party that was the conservative party. But whatever party was a conservative party throughout American history has tended to brutalize minority groups. So it's not surprising that minority groups are going to be very skeptical and opposed to a lot of the policies that they're pushing. Let's wrap up with some pros and cons for America becoming more unified. I don't know if I like that question. Why would there be cons in America being more unified? Why would there be cons for America being more unified? Yeah, like that seems to be a pretty ubiquitously good thing. So why can't we do it? Well, because we have valid political disagreements. For one, and also I think some people are hyper-focused on niche wedge issues so they can't see their broader political interests. You know, working people in Michigan and Tennessee actually have a lot in common. Michigan might not even be a good example. Working people in Washington and Tennessee actually have a lot in common in terms of some of their interests. But they're probably going to vote completely differently because they have different opinions on certain social issues. And that's fine. I mean, voting on social issues is makes sense. You know, that's an important part of life. But I think people need to realize we actually have more in common, a lot of cases, along class lines than we do along uh, certain ideological lines, at least in terms of the impact it has on our typical day-to-day lives. And I think if more people would realize that and vote according to that, then we might actually be able to get a lot of really productive things done for this country. But I think that's kind of a long ways off, at least for the time being. Um, I think younger generations are seeing that more and more because they've been exposed to the information that's necessary to come to that conclusion. So it might just be an issue of waiting for this younger generation to grow into the age where they are a sizable enough political block to where they can really swing elections one way or the other. We're already starting to see that. We saw that in the midterms, and it's only going to become more and more important going forward. Well, thank you.